Good morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here. And uh, welcome to the people who are watching on the live stream as well. If you could take a moment and fill out the guest uh, register at the end of the row and pass that uh, along the, your row there so other people could sign up as well. Be glad to know that uh, you were here worshiping with us this morning. A um, couple things here. Uh, I, as of right now, we're having new members class tonight. So I, I know some of you can't be there, but uh, for those of you who can, we are still planning on meeting at 6 and uh, going to 7.30. I guess if you could hang out with your mom and not come if you want, that would be totally understandable. You could bring your mom. Moms love talking about theology. That's a proven fact. You could bring her and hang out with her there. Uh, we will meet at 6, so um, I'm still planning on doing that. But there is no youth confirmation. That was a bridge too far. I could not ask uh, moms to come to a youth confirmation class right after adult Bible study. I had to draw the line somewhere. So no youth confirmation today. Men's Bible study starting uh, Wednesday morning at 6.30. We're, doing, we're uh, starting a new section on um, Christian disciplines uh, for men, which uh, if, if you're aware of the Christian disciplines, it's what is it that we as Christian men, what are we called to do to make daily habits in our lives to be the Christian men that God designed us to be? If you want to come to this, uh, there are uh, study guide books up here on uh, the front row. Uh, don't leave today. Those of you who are, are going to be there, don't leave without grabbing one of those and taking it because we'll do chapter one um, this Wednesday morning, okay? So don't forget they're right there. If you do forget, it'll be okay. I'll just bring it Wednesday morning, but try to remember. Uh, let's see. What else do I have here? Um, uh, youth group this Tuesday evening. I uh, look, look at the rest of the announcements that are there. Um, I think that's it. Oh, uh, KV is going to come, and she's going to talk to us for a little bit about the youth mission trip. And then we're going to sing the first hymn. Is that okay? You get to sprint back. Then there will be a small break. You can uh, uh, talk amongst yourselves for 10 seconds while KV goes back and starts playing the piano. Hello, everyone. So our youth group is taking a mission trip starting on July 7th through the 15th of this year. Um, and we are going to where I grew up, um, which is the White Earth Nation Reservation in northern Minnesota. Um, the church I grew up in has partnered with us in the past uh, to do some evangelism work in that area. And so we are going to partner with them again. And the first night, we're going to hopefully actually stay in Ruth's parents' church. We're going to do a lot of sleeping in churches. Um, and so we're going to stay there. Then we're going to make our way up to Minnesota. Um, it's pretty north in Minnesota, maybe 90 miles south of the Boundary Waters. And um, when we get there, we're going to be doing um, work with the community. First, we're going to um, advertise our VBS for the kids. Um, and so we'll go around town advertising for that. And then um, we'll try to recruit kids to come. And then at night, we'll be holding um, like video screenings, outdoor theater screenings of The Chosen. Um, Joey's going to be happy about that, <laughs> of The Chosen, um, to try and get the community involved for th three nights leading up to Thursday night, which is church. So um, what we're hoping is that 
It's a very small church. I think they have like maybe 10 people in their church, and they're really looking to grow. So we're putting this event on to try and grow them. Um, and hopefully we can get people who have continued to come to the movie nights to come to the actual church service. And then we're also going to be doing some work in the community as the needs arise um, through City Hall. So City Hall will identify needs of community members like yard work or um, different jobs, and we're, we're going to be working on those as well. So if you are interested in coming on the mission trip with us, we would love to have you. Um, it's for kids ages um, 12, like sixth grade age, all the way through high school, but we're also inviting our returning college students to come as well um, who were in youth group, or it, even if you're new and you'd be interested in the mission trip and you're in college, we'd love to have you. Any adults who are interested in coming, we'd also love to invite you as well. So in order to um, express your interest for this, please meet me at the front of the church after service today, and I can talk to you, give you a little more information, and then Ruth will make a sign-up sheet so we can contact you for future meetings. Thank you.
Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, whom we behold in awe and wonder, who has kept covenant and steadfast love with your people from age to age, we have sinned and done wrong, enacted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have known in our hearts what is right, and yet we did wrong anyway. We have been fascinated by evil, delighted with pleasing ourselves, satisfying our desires, serving ourselves with pleasures. O Lord, great God, have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. We know you are a God who delights in goodness. Grant that we too might delight in goodness. We know you are a God who rejoices in peace and justice. Grant that we might be at peace with ourselves and each other. O Lord, great God, grant that our hearts might be filled with the love of justice, with peace beyond understanding, with patience, with joy. These prayers we present to you, O Father, in the name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and yet lives forevermore. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Amen. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. From Psalm 66. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. To God. 
17, and I'm gonna, this is not the sermon text. The sermon text will be the epistle reading from 1 Peter. But I am going to reference this. I want you to pay attention to what Paul does here. He's preaching in Athens. He's preaching to pagans who don't know anything about Jesus. And what he's going to do is be very, he's very distressed by their idolatry, by their pagan idolatry. But he doesn't bash them for their pagan idolatry. What he does is he takes their idolatry and he uses it to point out to them their need for Jesus in a very respectful, gentle way. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they thought he was a preacher of foreign gods because he was talking about Jesus and then in, in Greek, uh, anastasis, the resurrection. They're assuming, they're hearing Jesus and anastasis and thinking, oh, these are two, this is a male and a female deity, co-deities that he's preaching. It's not till the end of his sermon that they, that they realize anastasis isn't a deity, it's actually something that happened to Jesus. They took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Athens is famous in, in, in the ancient world for its philosophical inquisitiveness. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, now catch this sermon, he does not quote the Bible one time, doesn't quote the Old Testament, doesn't even refer to Jesus by name here. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting a pagan poet here, and another pagan poet coming up, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So it's a remarkable model of what it means to evangelize people who are outside of the Christian story, which is increasingly more and more of us all the time, right? He, he, he doesn't quote scripture. He actually quotes their prophets and their philosophers approvingly and says, these guys were right. Now let's see what this means for who Jesus is and what he means to us. Uh, moving on to the sermon text, 1 Peter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand with me for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John chapter 14. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, child, I gladly say it. I am 
If you could look at um, the text, uh, the epistle text in the bulletin, or if you want to turn to 1 Peter, and we will continue talking about the theme of Christian suffering, which is, I mean, this is just what Peter's talking about, is suffering as Christians. And uh, we'll look at this text this morning, and this is not, um, it's not as convoluted as last week's text, but it's still a tiny bit difficult because you have that weird section, it's two things that make it difficult Two things that make it difficult for a broader Christian audience. One thing that makes it, um, one of those is less of a problem for Lutherans than for other evangelical Christians. One is this bit in the middle about Jesus, uh, after he was put to death, in the spirit going and preaching to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What the heck's up with that? Jesus going after he died and preaching to the spirits who had died in the flood. The other thing is the bit about baptism at the end, which we'll talk about briefly as well. But let's just focus on kind of the big picture here, and that will help us with those other two sections if we think about what does this mean for Christian suffering. Now, specifically in this text, it's about doing apologetics. Uh, 
while suffering as a Christian. Now, apologetics is a fancy word that just means making a defense, having an answer when people have questions about Christianity, being able to defend Christian belief. This is, can, can, a little commercial here real quick, this is non-negotiable. But being willing to talk to others about your faith is non-negotiable within Christianity. If Jesus died and rose from the dead to be the Lord of the universe, then that means he has universal claims over everybody. If instead, here's a postmodern version of Christianity I'm going to give you right now, which I've actually heard even Lutherans talk about. Jesus died and rose from the dead, like for me personally, and what other people believe is none of my business. I don't have any right to tell them what to believe. This is just about me and my internal like walk with God and just knowing that Jesus loves me. That's what it's about. That's actually a bogus version of Christianity. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Jesus is Lord of the universe, which, makes, which means he makes universal claims. It's actually unhealthy for our culture to not be willing to state those universal claims out loud. And Peter's going to talk about what that looks like because that will entail suffering. One of the reasons why Christians, even Christians today, are like, no, 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 I don't have a right to tell anybody else what to believe. It's just me and my personal private beliefs is because there's something in them that says it's scary to actually tell other people, here's what the truth is, and to be challenged by it. It's, it's, it's scary to be challenged by what they believe truth is. This is a, a skill that, that, that for the past 50 years we've slowly been losing. The, the belief in truth that moves you to say to somebody, I think this is true, and I want to hear what you think is true so we can discuss it. We've kind of lost that skill, slowly but surely. We're all kind of trapped in our little private ideological bubbles where it's just, oh, this is my own personal faith. Peter's going to move us off of that like the rest of the Bible does. So there's three sections here. There's verses 13 through 17, which talk about the practice of doing apologetics while suffering as a, as a Christian. There's verses 18 through 20, which show us the example of Jesus, of doing apologetics while suffering. And then there's verses 21 and 22, which show us the power of apologetics, which is going to be Christian baptism, okay? So first of all, let's talk about uh, this first section, probably the longest one here in the sermon, the practice of apologetics and suffering, verses 13 through 17. And I'm going to give you, uh, let's see, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six things I want to point out that Peter says, here's how you do it. Now, first of all, let me just say this right off the bat. This is not about door-to-door -door evangelism. It's, uh, some of you, when you talk about evangelism or apologetics, you're like, I can't go up to talk to people about my faith. Yes, I know. I have a hard, I'm very introverted. Like, I have a hard time talking to strangers, too, about my faith. What Peter is talking about is when people ask you about your faith. Now, that does presuppose that you're going to live the kind of life that people are going to say to you, what's up with being a Christian? You can't hide behind your little postmodern bubble and try to look like everybody else. More on that later. And then expect people to come to you and say, what's different about you? Because honestly, nothing is different about you. You're a postmodern. I mean, you might be a postmodern Christian, but you share the postmodern religion with everybody else in the culture. Pagans, secularists, the nuns, Methodists, whoever. I mean, it's all, it's all fair game, right? So it, he does presuppose that you are going to look and sound differently. But when that happens, he's not saying you got to go door to door and knock on doors and confront strangers with the gospel. What he's saying here in verse 15 is to make, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Anyone who asks you. If you live differently, people will ask you, what's up with you? When that happens, he's got 
well, he's got a bunch here. There's, I'm just going to pick out six. There's more than that, but six things that will help us when, when we do that. So first of all, let's just uh, kind of slowly work through this text. Verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. We're, as Christians, we're not to have fear. You're not to be afraid. You're not to be motivated by fear. You're not to speak the gospel or to live the gospel out of a place of fear. Fear is what motivates our culture. Fear is a tool that our culture uses to get your votes. If you don't vote for me, everything's gonna be horrible and your life's gonna be miserable. Fear is what advertisers use to get your money. If you don't have this product or this service, you're really, really gonna be missing out. You're gonna be stuck behind the eight ball. You better send me your money and then everything's gonna be okay. Fear is what special interest groups use to motivate change. You're not like us. If you don't be like us, you're gonna be on the outside looking in. Fear is what parents use to scare their kids into doing what's right. Fear is the tool that the world uses to try to create change. It doesn't actually create change because if everything's motivated out of fear, it's all gonna look the same. Christians are not to work from the basis of fear. Have no fear nor be troubled. Christians should have no fear because they trust that God's completely in charge. Christians should have no fear because they know how it ends. Christians should have no fear because they love everybody. Look, to the extent that I use fear to try to make my kids do what I want them to do, I'm not acting in love, I'm manipulating. If I truly love them, I don't need to be afraid of anything. I can continue to pour myself into them and know that God uses self-sacrificial love to create change. Christians should have no fear. Second of all, moving uh, here into, I referenced this a second ago, verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. You should have reasons for why you're a Christian. If your number one reason for why you're a Christian is, I don't know, I was raised a Christian. That's not a bad reason to be a Christian. I'm glad for you, but it's not a reason. Christians should have intellectual reasons for why they're, why they're believers, and they should be able to offer those to other people. Look, the postmodern world, this is what we're talking about in the adult Bible study right now. The postmodern world largely sees reality as irrational. There's no meaning or purpose to it. It's random. This is why, I'm bringing the upstairs Bible study up here for just a second. This is why most of you, and especially the younger that you get, when you hear politicians talk, you don't hear information, you hear manipulation. The reason why is because you, like me, I'm a, I'm a postmodern too, our default mode is to largely see the world as irrational. Communication, therefore, is power tools to try to control people. So this is how I see, I don't listen to ads. I, I, I honestly, I know this is gonna make some of you angry. I have not watched a presidential debate in probably 20 years because I just assume, maybe even wrongly, that I'm not getting information, I'm getting power plays. Why is that? It's because I largely see the world as an irrational place. Now, Christians, for, for Christians, that's wrong because the world designed by a God of reason is a rational place. We should have reasons for why we believe that Christianity is true. Apologetics should not fundamentally be about calling people to a blind leap in the dark. Look, I don't know why Jesus is real. I don't know anything about this, but like, just try really hard to believe. That's not, what, that's not what apologetics is. Apologetics is giving people reasons. Now, this, I don't wanna, this is, uh, just play along. Be, be nice to me, be gracious to me. Some of you have like come along with me on this journey 
of watching Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, the historian, go on this journey. So he, he's, Tom Holland is a famous historian. He writes a couple of massive books on um, Persian fire, which is about the, the history of the Persian Empire. Uh, he wrote Rubicon, which is about the rise and fall of Julius Caesar. He's a brilliant historian. He wrote a book several years ago. If you've been to church and you've not tuned me out when I talked about Tom Holland, and if you have, I understand. He wrote a book several years ago called Dominion, which like traces the influence of Christianity the past 2,000 years. Tom Holland has called himself consistently in the book, in, in Dominion, in the preface, he calls himself a secular agnostic. He, he doesn't believe in Christianity. But what he sees is the values that we hold as Western liberal people are fundamentally Christian values. Being against racism. Equal rights for what have historically been marginalized groups, women and minorities, believing in equal rights for them. This is only, he, he, he writes this history and comes to the conclusion, this only can be traced to Christianity. There's nothing in paganism, there's nothing in the Enlightenment, there's nothing in the secular world that has produced this sort of like philosophical worldview that everybody is equal because everybody is made in God's image. He's a secular agnostic because that's who he is, that's who he was, it's kind of who he's been for, for, for years, but he recognizes that we, like, and again, some of you have heard this before, that we believe that all people have equal rights because Christianity told us that was true. Now we've abandoned the belief that humans are made in God's image. We've abandoned that belief, but we still want to hold on to this belief that all humans are equal. Now, he has consistently said, I'm, you know, I'm fascinated by Christianity. I'm a secular agnostic. Uh, Harry and I listened to a, a, a podcast from just a couple weeks ago where he's starting to change. It's almost remarkable how his interaction with the reasons for Christianity are moving him off of moving him off of his secular position because he sees my secular position is untenable. He's not willing to give up equal rights for women and minorities. It's ingrained in him that that's true. But now that he's seen that there's no basis in my secularism for having those beliefs, he's starting to slowly move. So I'm, I'm gonna give this kind of a longish quote from this podcast, but I'm gonna give it to you. He says this, I still believe in the liberal values I have. He means secular values. Well, instinctively I believe in them, but objectively, I don't. I stand on a kind of Nietzschean abyss where I can't believe anything I want to believe anymore. But I still do believe in them, that every human being has dignity, that strength isn't the measure of value, that weakness, like, so in the ancient world, the strong are in charge and the weak are designed by nature to be slaves. That, that includes women, uh, uh, captives in war. Nature is, providence has created them to be slaves. I don't believe in that, he says, but I don't have any reason, I don't have any, my worldview doesn't have any reason for believing those things. He says, I recognize these as not being scientific, not being objective. Look, if I, if I walk, if I'm teaching a Lewis and Clark class and I say, why is it that racism is wrong? They're going to say back to me, everybody knows that racism is wrong. And what Tom Holland has realized is not everybody knows that. Like our philosophical worldview can't possibly hold that up. I know I've said these things before. But being bred, he says, as a distinctive cultural and theological tradition that's all around me, that's a part of my inheritance, my beliefs are actually theological. I didn't want to believe in God. I, I, I didn't want to be a Christian. I was an agnostic. But my own beliefs about humans are 
deeply theological. So he goes on to say this. And this is, this is actually a little bit of where he started to move. So he says, it's very, very easy for me to read the Bible, go to a church, listen to what Christians are saying, read the great masterpieces of Christian literature, and feel moved by it, to feel that I am a part of what they're talking about. And sometimes I can feel that this is more for me than just a kind of exercise in cultural tourism. Sometimes I can believe that the spirit is real, and I can believe that the story of the passion and the resurrection is so strange that it's not just a kind of cultural accident, but perhaps it's expressive of something that's really true. And then there are other times that I think, no, it's all complete nonsense. We're just all animals. We'll probably be wiped out by an asteroid at some point, and we'll go the way of the dinosaurs. So it's these two things going on in his head. His, his old secularism, which says we're just machines and animals, and we're all going to die and just go away, and nothing ever changes. But this new realization that everything I value and hold dear about equality and human rights is deeply Christian. And when I listen to that story, I actually feel like I'm being pulled into a part of the story. He goes on to say this. I suppose it's a bit like when you're first trying to ride a bike, that you can find yourself saying, wow, I'm riding a bike, and then you fall off. This is remarkable. He was not saying this two years ago. That like, there's two parts of him, and it's like trying to ride a bike. There's the Christian part where he's getting on and he's going, and he's like, yes. And then he falls off, and then he's like, oh, I guess I can't ride a bike. It varies on my mood, how he feels, he says. It varies on my mood and the time of the year. It varies on how hard I think about what it is that I'm doing. But I suspect that I'm not unusual in that. I'm gonna come back to this quote in just a minute. But what's happening is this. Tom Holland is being moved to Christianity. He is going to, come, he is going to become a believer by reasons, reasons. Now, by and large, I mean, he had help along the way. There are church scholars that helped him write Dominion. But by and large, he's studying history and reasons and is like, yeah, this makes sense. Be prepared to give those reasons. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be Tom Holland, of course. You don't have to be a genius. But you need to have reasons. There are reasons. And now this is a commercial for coming to adult Bible study. I'm trying to give us reasons I'm trying to give you tools that you can have when somebody says, so what's up with Christianity? You can say, oh, well, this is A, B, and C going on, like what Tom Holland is going through, and not just be like, oh, I don't know. Oh, I, I go to church sometimes, <laughs> you know? I, I pray sometimes. What you're saying when you do that is like, there's no difference between me and you. You've got your own private, I've got my privilege. Instead of saying, actually, there's legit historical and philosophical reasons for why Christianity is true. Second of all, though, it's not just reasons. Look at this. Be prepared, verse uh, 15, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's reasons that's rational, and then there's hope that's largely emotional and instinctual. This desire that things be good, a hope that everything's gonna be okay. You, we, you and I should be exhibiting this, hope. Now, I was talking with one of you uh, within the past year, you were, somebody in our congregation was inviting somebody along with them to come to church, an unbeliever. And this person said to me, I hope that at this service that I'm bringing them to, everybody sings. And I've talked about this in here before. Because if, if we go in and we're sitting there and nobody's singing, my unbelieving friend is gonna look around and be like, they don't believe this. This is just kind of a lame exercise for them, just like it is for me. I'm going here to be nice to you. And they're just coming here to whatever, I don't know what reason they're coming here, but it's just kind of a lame exercise. What is this friend looking for? They're looking for hope. Something to, something to say to them, there's a past, there's a present, 
and there's a future that's going to be good. That's going to be good. There's something beautiful about Christianity. There's something about Christianity that makes life beautiful, that makes the tasting of delicious food not just sort of like a random biological experience, you know, the nerve endings in my taste buds firing and whatnot, but there's something that connects me to a higher reality that wants me to enjoy beautiful food because that higher reality is good and has designed me to experience his beauty. Listening to music, having a good conversation with friends, these sorts of things. The hope that comes from experiencing these things as beautiful and hopeful. Now, let me, I'm gonna finish up this Tom Holland quote because in the quote, and this is a little bit wonky because it's in a podcast, so he didn't write it out. It's, he's moving from this intellectual reason to his desire for the hope that he knows Christianity can offer. Here's what he says. So he, like, he had that quote that I um, said earlier. He said, I suspect I'm not unusual in like, you know, getting on the bike, falling off, getting back up on the bike. And the, the two hosts of the podcast, this man and woman said to him, no, that's actually not unusual. It's, a, it's kind of a normal way that people come to faith. And he goes on to, to say this. He goes on to say, I'll tell you when I feel at least. When, this, is, this is super interesting. When I feel the value of Christianity least, when I'm like, uh, not interested in Christianity. He said, I'll tell you when I feel at least is when I hear Christians talking about Christianity as though it's just something that can be entirely blended in seamlessly with the broader pattern of the secular world. Did you catch, this is an unbeliever who's saying this. When I hear Christians talk about their Christianity as, oh, it's just a part, you know, whatever. It's not really, I go to church on Sundays. Me personally, every once in a while I pray, but I'm really no different than you. We kind of live the same sort of lives and have the same sort of values. He says, that interests me the least in Christianity. When I hear Christians acting like that. He says, and then I just despise it. I think there's no point in it. This is legitimately. When you treat your, when we treat, when, I, when you and I treat our Christianity as just some sort of, some sort of addendum to our lives, the world looks at Christianity and despises it. Why, why would they, well, there's no point in it. If you're just coming here for your own psychological benefit, stay home and sleep. There's more psychological benefit to getting a good night's rest than there is to coming to church. You will get more comfort having a glass of wine before bed and sleeping till 11 o'clock than you will coming to church. It's just a fact of the crucifixion. There's no point in it unless there's some sort of deep reality that connects us to, that connects us to this bigger, larger meta-narrative. He goes on to say this. He talks about visiting, I'm not quoting him here. He talks about visiting an ancient church in England uh, down close to... Um, 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 Canterbury, where English church history was just starting, like in the 600s. And he says, he says I went in there, and he says, the sense of the strangest, the, the sense of the strangeness there and of being connected to this larger Christian story. And he says, then I completely felt it. I felt the spirit rush. I felt the flame. And then he goes on to say this, I crave the enchantment. I crave the enchantment. And I think a Christianity that has bled itself of enchantment is a pallid and anemic thing. That's hope. He wants hope. He wants to know that there's something, oh, but this is not a really good Christian word, but it's kind of the, it's a word that helps unbelievers understand it. Something magical behind it. Something real and powerful. It's not just like we're just hanging out, but it's something real and powerful and connected to this big, big story. Have a reason to give them hope. You have hope. Have hope. Don't be lost. This is another way you can do it. 
don't fall for the fear games. People who have hope don't have fear. Don't fall for the fear games. Okay, moving on. I'll hustle up a little bit here. Uh, moving on uh, into verse 15. Uh, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We are to treat unbelievers, for those of you who are Christians, we are to treat unbelievers with gentleness and respect. You are not to fire pot shots at unbelievers. You are not to fire gospel bombs on social media at unbelievers. You are not to play power games. We are to treat unbelievers with gentleness and respect. Well, they're not treating us with gentleness and respect. Yes, that's the whole point. This is about Christian suffering and evangelism, suffering and apologetics. We are to treat them with kindness and quietness and respect, not with anger. This is not a culture war we're fighting here. We are presenting the gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, and we are to do it with gentleness and respect. There's two ways that we can do this. Some some of us are afraid of doing evangelism because we're like, I have to be aggressive with people. I have to get in people's face. That's a wrong way to think about evangelism. The flip side is that others of us are like, if I'm not being aggressive, then nothing's really happening. And I want to encourage you that that's not true either. That being patient, being respectful, taking your time, listening, asking questions, and listening respectfully, like genuine questions, like what do you believe? What is it that shapes you? And listening respectfully, this is all a part of what it means to present a reason for the hope that Jesus has given us. So treat unbelievers with gentleness and respect. Uh, Fifth thing, behave well. Verse 16, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We're gonna be, this, I, I mentioned this a week or so ago, so I'm not gonna spend hardly any time on this. We're gonna make mistakes. You are gonna tell lies. When you do, repent. Ask the person that you've lied to for forgiveness. But to the best of our abilities, with the power of the Holy Spirit, be honest. Be faithful in your relationships. Be kind to those who are unkind to you. Be helpful to people for no reason at all, except you just wanna self-sacrificially love them. Have good behavior. And then finally, trust God's will. Verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Christians suffer sometimes and we're like, oh, God, God's abandoned me. I just listened to a podcast yesterday, actually, when I was mowing the yard. It was a This American Life. I'll just give you the short version of the story. He's an Orthodox Jew in New York City. He was an Orthodox Jew. He and his wife, huge New York Rangers fans. This is back in the Marc Messier days, so back maybe 20, 30 years ago. One of the big playoff games was happening on Sabbath. They're not allowed to drive a car on Sabbath. So they walked 16 miles from Queens to Madison Square Garden. His wife had to take her shoes off and walk in sock feet in downtown Manhattan because it was so far like her feet were killing her. They got to the game, the Rangers lost. And that, he says, was the first step in his giving up his faith, was this experience of choosing not to ride my car on the Sabbath to make God happy. And then when I did it, the Rangers lost anyway. Don't be like that. Don't let your suffering push you off of what's reality. God's saying it right here. If it will be God's will, it it sometimes will be God's will that we suffer. I don't understand that either. I I don't understand that. Because I don't know what the reasons are for suffering. But when it happens, tell yourself God's in charge. He's not out of control. It's okay. It's okay. I'm suffering for him. All right, that's the practice. And now I'll hustle up through these. I know that was a long section. That was the practice of apologetics and suffering. Let's talk about the example of apologetics and suffering. Verses 18 through 20. 
Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, much talked about text. What's going on here? Did Jesus really, after he died, go and preach the gospel to the souls who were died in the flood, and why? Why was he doing that? What's going on here? And I can't tell you what's going on here because it's, I, I just, you wouldn't understand it. It's too deep and complex. I don't have time to explain it. That's like fancy pastor way of saying, I don't understand it. I have no clue what's going on there with that. And so I can't tell you. But I would like for you to pretend that I know what's going on there. If you thought I was smarter than I am. Nobody really knows. But it's kind of not the main point. I'll tell you what the main point. The main point is the key word also in verse 18. You are gonna suffer for the sins of unbelievers around you when you do evangelism. Christ also suffered for our sins. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We can suffer for the sins of others in order to bring them to God because Jesus suffered for our sins to bring us to God. We can be like Jesus. We can suffer for sins. Jesus functions, yes, of course, Jesus is the one-off sacrifice for sins for all time. We can't do that. But we can suffer like Jesus suffered for the sins of others. Be prepared for it. Christ suffered to share the gospel. We can suffer to share the gospel. In fact, when Christ died on the cross, while he was dead, which is kind of the ultimate in suffering, right? Dying. While he was dead, he went and preached the gospel to people who didn't believe in him. That's how much he suffered in his evangelism, right? He functions as an example for us. So weird though, why would, why would he, of all examples, why would he choose Jesus going to hell to preach the gospel to people who died in the flood? Well, the answer comes in verses 21 through 22, where we talk about the power of apologetics and suffering. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, little commercial for new, uh, uh, new members class here. I'm not gonna argue for this right now. I'm just gonna assume it's true because Peter says it's true. Baptism now saves you. If you, uh, if you aren't familiar with uh, Lutheran theology of baptism, I would just say, if you are sola scriptura, you kind of have to go with this. It says baptism now saves you, which means, in the Greek it means baptism now saves you. In English, it also means baptism now saves you. Baptism saves us, all right? Let's just leave it there. And come to new members class if, if you're interested. Probably not tonight, but next Sunday we'll be talking about that. Why is he talking about baptism? So says baptism corresponds to the story of the flood and Jesus going and preaching to, to the, the, the lost souls who died in the flood. And now, hang with me just for a second, okay? What does baptism do here? Baptism saves us by connecting us, look at the end of verse 21, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism kills you, connects you to Jesus' death. It takes your death, which is going to happen in the future, fast forwards it to the moment when you were baptized, but it also fast forwards Jesus' resurrection to the moment you were baptized, you are now raised with him. You are now raised with him. You are, in other words, you are living in the new creation. 
I know, I know you're still living in Glen Carbon in 2023, but you are literally a new creation person through baptism. And now what's happened is you have been brought out of new creation, pulled forward, going back in time to 2023, and you are now preaching to the lost souls here in 2023. Suffering for it, but preaching to the lost souls here prior to the new creation, because you are already new creation. Jesus goes back in time and preaches to the lost soul in the flood. You are going back in time from your baptismal resurrection, back in time to 2023, and preaching to the lost souls now. This is what baptism does to us, okay? It moves you back in time. If Jesus can be, if Jesus can be moved back in time, you can be moved back in time too. Look, there's another way of saying it. There's two ways of escaping the flood of God's judgment. There's two ways. You can either drown or you can get on the ark. Those are the two ways. Some drown. Those of you who are Christians have gotten on the ark of baptism. So this is what 1 Peter 3 is saying. You've gotten on the ark of baptism. And because of that, you are safe. But you're living in a world of people who aren't safe, people who are desperately doggy paddling for their life. But since you're safe, it's okay. You can evangelize them. You can pull them up onto the boat and you don't have to be freaked out because you already know how it ends. You're living in the future. You've come from the future to evangelize the past. Look, I, one last example, then, then I'll, I'll, be, I'll be done because I, I want this to make sense to you. And my example is this. If it play, th- th- this infuriates me, playing spades with Angela because I'm not ever allowed to be on Angela's team because I'm not good enough. And then I bring her down and then it's not pretty. So I'm never on her team. But we'll do this, you know, like I'll be playing with my, my, my partner and there's, uh, if, if, you, if you know uh, spades, I just, you just have to take my word for how this works. Me and my partner, we need two tricks left to beat Angela and her partner. We need two tricks. And there's only four tricks left. And I, so I've got a strategy. Here's how we're going to get these two tricks. But this happens all the time, and she's got this smug look on her face. Angela will have all the high spades in her hand, and she'll just slowly play them and watch the life ebb out of me. She's a perfectly contented look on her face. She's not perturbed. She's not disturbed. She's completely enjoying the fact that she knows the future. She already knows how this hand ends. It's all laid out there in front of her. She knows she wins. She's not afraid. She's not upset. She's not panicked. She's just gonna win. That's me and you. Your baptism moves you into new creation so you already know how it ends. The hand is sitting there right in front of you, not in cards, but in God's word. All you have to do is read it and know, I don't have to be afraid. I can love, I can be respectful because God's gonna use this word in my life, the reason and the hope that I have to evangelize some of these lost people. It happens in suffering, but the suffering is not ultimately real. Angela's not feeling any suffering when she knows how it wins. Her partner might, but Angela's already got the game won. Jesus has the game won. The suffering that you feel is not real. What really is real is the victory of Jesus. Let's encourage people to come into that. Let's live lives that pull people into that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for loving us and for being a good God. Help us to be evangelists. Help us to, be, help us to ha- have ready at hand, Father, the life of hope and the intellectual reasons to tell people why you have saved the world through your son, Jesus, who is now Lord of all things. We pray this in his name. Amen.
My soul be still And do not fear The winds may change the rage tomorrow God is on your side No longer dread The fires of unexpected sorrow
please stand for prayer? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a great God to us and for constantly meeting our needs, uh, all of them. Help us to find our uh, true hope and purpose and meaning in you. Forgive us, Father, from when we turn to idols, from when we turn to money, sex, or power for ultimate meaning. Help us to receive those things as good gifts from you, but to find our hope and our reason for existence in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray this morning for everybody who's struggling, which, which is all of us, but some of us are really struggling, Lord. Some of us are grappling with uh, deep, ultimate questions about reality and about you and faith, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir up faith in the hearts of those who are, who are doubting you, and I pray that you would meet the needs of those who are also struggling physically, and that you would give relief from pain and healing to bodies. I pray that you would be with those who mourn. I pray especially today that you'd be with Bev Tiemann and her family um, with the passing of her husband Mike yesterday, and that you would give her comfort and hope and uh, knowledge that Mike is uh, free from pain and, and um, struggles now and worry, and uh, that you would give her also and, and their kids hope and comfort knowing that he is going to raise his body and all of our bodies someday from the grave. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I thank, for, I thank you for the ministries that you've given our church here, and I thank you especially this morning for the property team, and for Tim, and Josh, and Joel, and Christina, and Jeff, and that you would give them wisdom and resources uh, to do what you've called them to do, which is to take care of us and um, our facility, and to um, keep our facility uh, up and going so that it can be a, a light and a beacon here, a place where people can come and meet with you. Just bless them. I also pray that you'd be with our missionaries, Josh and Coco Lang, who are in China, and that as they live and preach your gospel there, that they would see good fruit, that uh, the Chinese, that they miss, people that they minister to would um, uh, be given the reasons and the hope for uh, your son's kingdom. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we also especially thank you this morning for our mothers that you gave to each one of us and uh, that you and your sovereign wisdom, uh, Father, and love for us gave us the exact mothers that you want us to have. And so for the love that we've received and for the nurturing that we uh, were given and the training and uh, the ongoing support, Father, we thank you for that. Uh, help it to turn our eyes towards you who are, are the source of, true source of life behind our mothers and the true source of comfort and nurturing and hope behind our mothers, and that uh, you would bless them for uh, mirroring who you are to us. Lord, in your mercy. We pray all these things because you're a good God and because you love us and because you've extended yourself even down here to us to become like us, to shed your blood for us, to unite us with you, with your Father, and with the Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus, we pray these prayers to our Father together only in your name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give many thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God. And most especially are we bound to praise you on this day for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very Paschal Lamb who was sacrificed for us and bore the sins of the world. By his dying, he's destroyed death, and by his rising again, he's restored to us everlasting life. Therefore, with Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and with all the witnesses of the resurrection, 
with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them also, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. You may be seated. Oh, Jesus Christ, true Jesus 
May this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Meet me downstairs for adult Bible study. We are talking about the Disney princesses, Adolf Hitler and Harry Potter. Go and